And welcome back to everything else. I am your host, as always, Nick Stewart. How you doing? How you living? Taking care of your gut? Tell you, man. I'm becoming more of a hippie every day. Uh, The more I learn about uh, gut health and vitamins and stuff like that, I'm I'm turning into Joe Rogan over here. Maybe I'll talk about that someday on the podcast. Um, But I have an inkling that that's not why you tuned in. Uh, today, I think that you're uh, interested in matters relating to the title. Um, I want to quickly thank everyone who bought a copy of Black Threads last week. While uh, all the proceeds were going to my friend Mario and his fight against ALS, uh, some of you even bought a second copy to help out. So I can't thank you enough for that generosity. Thank you. So, what are we talking about today? What am I limping to the barn with, you might be asking yourself? Well, We're going to talk about Romans 13, the most notorious passage of the Bible when it comes to government and libertarianism, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my views and how they coincide with uh, that passage. It's no secret, guys. I'm an anarchist. Um, I I really wish that one person listening would just gasp and (laughs) clutch their pearls. (sighs) (laughs) A filthy anarchist. Um, I, I basically have been since I was nine years old, um, cause I, I loved punk rock. Uh, but there were some major vacillations along that journey. Um, I was kind of a leftist when I was a young boy growing up during the Bush administration. Cause like I said, I liked punk and I just sort of, uh, absorbed all of those messages. And later on as a cultural Christian, I was vaguely Republican Then I became a libertarian in 2015, and I have been ever since, but I kept going back and forth between small government libertarianism and full-blown anarcho-capitalism. You know, I would hear a really good argument that, like, we need a court system, and then I would hear the anarcho-capitalists saying, uh, you know, 80% of of our legal matters are already handled privately. So, you know, I would just go back and forth all the time. Well... Uh, Come March of 2020, guess which side finally won the war, and that's pretty ironic, right? Anarchy winning a war, get it? So on an experiential level, I have precluded any possibility of a just government or even a government that isn't a complete liability to the people over which it rules. Um, You like that? Over which it rules? This year, I'm trying really hard to eliminate that error from my speech. No more ending sentences with articles. I'm done with it. But uh, we're, what, I'm recording this on the 21st, I think. 21st of January, and I'm already kind of doing it naturally. Like, it already, it's starting to come a little more naturally to me than it did. So, join me. Join join me in the no ending sentences with articles challenge. 2023. It's going to be great. 
So I've thought about these issues um, a lot over the last few years, and the reason for it is that um, here's here's the difference between normal secular people when it comes to anarchism and Christians. So normal secular people can just decide one day, hey, this doesn't make sense. I don't believe in government anymore. Here are my reasons. There's nothing more to think about. Uh, Christians, on the other hand, have a harder time just casting off the entire concept of the state and saying it's BS. Um, and there's a very good reason for that. The, the main reason is our aforementioned Romans 13. Now, uh, that's not the only thing in the Bible that, that poses or uh, appears to pose a challenge to the anarchist way of thought, but it's definitely the, the first one that comes to everyone's mind when, when the issue is raised. And here's something I should clarify at the outset. We're going to do a lot of clarifications uh, going into this. There are many different forms of anarchism. Um, there, there's about as many different forms and thoughts of it as there are anarchists. Um, I can't waste time going over every single kind, although that does sound like a fun episode. But I can recommend Michael Malice's book, The Anarchist Handbook. It's a great place to start in understanding how many different schools of thought there are and, and you know how they kind of think and operate. Uh, that book is a collection of essays from all kinds of different anarchists. Um, I believe the tagline of the book is, the black, fl- uh, the black flag flies under many colors. Um, so that's a great tag, fantastic copywriting on his part, but, um, it has essays from like pre-Marxist communists, like back when communists were anarchists and, uh, as well as, uh, good American capitalists like Murray Rothbard. Um, it even has an essay from Leo Tolstoy to represent Christian anarchists. So it's a, it's a very well-rounded book. And, um, the only one missing from there is Noam Chomsky, the socialist, but, uh, I, I did hear some explanation for why he wasn't in there, but I, I don't remember what it was. And uh, and if you like that, I'll, I'll also recommend the Voluntarist Handbook, um, which is the same concept. It's a collection of essays, but only includes essays by people in my camp, which are capitalists. So it's people like um, Michael Malice and um, Tom Woods and Murray Rothbard and, and people like that. So... So I already kind of said it, but just to be clear, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I don't often feel the need to qualify that, because for the most part, uh, if you're against the state and you hate violence and coercion, then you're a fellow traveler of mine. Uh, but all that to say, as a, as a capitalist who believes in property rights, I don't have as many ideological quibbles um, with anarchism that, that puts it so strictly at odds with Christianity, or, or at least people think that it does. Obviously, the communist way of thought is very at odds with the Christian worldview, and that's the foundational reason why I reject it. Uh, it's an economic house of cards as well, uh, but that to me is less of a crime than the Antichrist foundation that it's built on. Um, damn it. On which it is built. <laughs> We're going to do this, guys. We're going we're gonna to meet this challenge. And to be fair, um, most anarcho-communists would not consider me an anarchist. Um, anti-capitalism is so at the core of their entire philosophy that they would never uh, consider someone who believes in property rights or a private property as a, a fellow traveler among them. And I, on the other hand, 
uh, consider the lack of property rights in their system to be a, a pretty huge infringement on liberty, which is what m most anarchism is about, after all. Like, that's kind of the whole point, liberty. So I just want to clarify um, a bunch of things before we get into Romans 13. It's kind of already what I'm doing. Um, because some of this conversation is dead on arrival if you don't understand me going in. And so I think it's really important to, you know, clarify all this at the outset. Um, I believe that the natural forces of capitalism can provide for us everything the government needs to provide, like security, and everything else is unnecessary. Even by saying government needs, I don't even believe that. Security needs to be provided but I believe government is the least efficient um, deliverer of that of that service. So, so before you ask about the roads, the answer is I don't know. Uh, but if it needs to be done, it will get done. And if not, it wasn't necessary in the first place. So, I believe in property rights, charity, the non-aggression principle, things like that. Uh, Matt Kibbe sums it up perfectly. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. That's it. It's all there is to it. Libertarianism is not so much about telling you how to build the roads or, um, you know, creating this economic plan. It's about not stealing from people to build the roads. You get it? It doesn't. It doesn't come with a like an economic plan built in um, because that's not what it's about. It's about not hurting people and not taking their stuff. So that's the problem it seeks to solve first and foremost. So as a Christian, I obviously hold to a Christian morality, so I don't uh, seek to normalize immoral behaviors um, that are regulated, however poorly, by the government. And in some cases, they're promoted by the government. So, you know, just because there are certain things that I wouldn't make illegal, that doesn't mean that I like them or that I would want people to do them. Um, but as it stands right now, you know, I... I I doubt the efficacy of locking people in cages for those behaviors that I don't like. Uh, it doesn't seem to help, and in, in some cases it worsens the problem. And I think the last 50 years of the drug war proves uh, not only that locking people in cages does little to correct the behavior, but when the government is simultaneously in bed with drug cartels and big pharma, the drug problem gets out of hand a lot faster than they're able to deal with it. And to reiterate, the way they deal with it doesn't work. So with all that out of the way, I think that's everything I can think of um, going into this that might kind of uh, be a defense against the whole concept in the first place, because I'm pretty sure you're not going to hear a word I say from this point out if, if you are already kind of thinking of those um, arguments against the position in your head. So with all that out of the way, we've eliminated a great many of the elementary obstacles that Christians tend to have when uh, first considering anarchism. Uh, if we need it, the free market will provide it. If it doesn't, it must not have been needed. And it's not about, it's just more about not hurting people than it is about building the roads. And as far as immoral behaviors, I don't like it either, but punishments aren't working. So we got to figure something else out. And again, there's no built-in solution to those things. It's just about not locking people in cages, ruining the rest of their life so they can't get a job. So the last thing I have to say, and then we'll get into Romans 13, um, you should already know, and I shouldn't have to say it, 
but nowadays you do have to clarify this. Um, so just in case, let's say it. I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe that there are no errors in the Bible. Bible's truthful. We as Christians need to live by whatever it says. So when I interpret passages like Romans 13, I'm not attempting to twist scripture and make it say things it doesn't say just to suit my position. So if you think you hear me doing that, by all means, correct me. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. But I often wonder about the, um, the observer effect um, when it comes to studying the Bible. Uh, the observer effect in science is the idea that you can't study something without changing it or affecting it. You're, you're, like your very presence there to observe something makes it act differently. Like if you were going to go out and study lions, you might be changing the lion's behavior by being out there studying them. You know, does that make sense? So I'm not saying we change scripture, but I think we can inadvertently change how we look at it and how we think of it because we're going to certain passages to confirm or deny ideas and concepts that we already have in our heads. So hopefully I don't do that today. So let's finally get into Romans 13. I'm going to read uh, the first seven verses, which amount to the main passage we're referring to when we say Romans 13. It's the stuff about government. Uh, that's what everyone's talking about. I'm going to read the entire thing, and then we can break it down. First one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So the first thing to ask, what does it mean to be subject to the governing authorities? That's the first command in the first verse of this passage. Now, I'm no Greek expert, as you may or may not know, but I uh, did find this info while I was researching the Greek word for subject or being in subjection. Hupatasso, probably. I'm probably saying that right. Uh, anyways, there's a, there's, from what I found... There's a, a military sense and a non-military sense to this word. And the military sense is soldiers being organized by a military leader. And the non-military sense is this, um, and I quote, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying out a burden. It just sort of seems like giving in and just letting things, you know, le letting things take their course. According to Strong's, it just means obey. So if I'm to be a literalist, Paul is asking for a voluntary obedience, and it sounds like my heart doesn't even have to be in it. But regardless of what it means, 
we know right off the bat that it's not the same kind of subjection we're talking about when we're told to be subject to God, right? God wouldn't put earthly rulers on the same level as himself, right? I think we can all agree on that. He goes on to say that uh, there is no authority except from God. This speaks to the concept that ultimately all these rulers belong to God anyway, and they should be subject to him. And that's kind of the crux of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22 when he says, render unto Caesar. Caesar is made in God's image, just like the coin is made in Caesar's. So render unto Caesar the coin, render unto God Caesar. Um, but the, the hard part comes when, when Paul says that they've been instituted by God. So from here we have to keep going to get the full context. So verses 2 through 5. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Paul is saying, if you do good, then you don't have to fear the ones who are appointed by God to punish evil. But that's an interesting thing we often pass by without uh, really thinking about it. Um, the governing rulers in question have a purpose, and that is to punish evildoers. So one must ask, what if they don't do that? And what if they, in fact, are the evildoers most of the time? And those are questions I don't know how to answer. Then Paul goes on to, to say, pay your taxes. And, you know, not an overwhelmingly pro-government passage by any means, um, nor is it really denouncing the institution altogether. I think when you, when you actually read that passage, it's a lot different than either side of the argument uh, makes it out or thinks of it in their heads. Um, I, th I think there's a, a lot to the function for which God institutes government to punish evildoers, and that's why we pay taxes. So a lot can be said for the fact that we here in America don't live under a government that punishes evildoers, um, at least not righteously, and our government, in fact, are the evildoers a lot of the time. Now, anyone attempting to deal with this passage is, is typically going to fall within two camps. One, you have to obey everything the government tells you no matter what. And two, yada yada, this doesn't mean anything. Just do whatever you want. Now, I'm, I'm only exaggerating a little bit when I, when I characterize them that way. Uh, the reality is that everyone has exceptions to those two positions. Tellingly, there are a lot more exceptions on the side of those who take a hard stand on obeying the government. So let me explain these exceptions. Everyone agrees we don't have to obey the Nazis. Now, I have actually met people who said they would have had to have obeyed the Nazis if they were living under that government, but they are the exception that proves the rule. When you hear someone say it out loud, you instantly hear how stupid that is. So how could a Christian submit themselves to a government doing such terrible things as the Nazis? Great question for us Americans. The point being... Even hardcore statist Christians say that if the government is telling you to sin, you have to disobey them. God is above them in the law. A lot of them 
uh, don't actually live that out when the chips are down, but that's the principle given anyway. And on the other side of the argument, you can't get around what the Bible says about government. So you have to have some explanation for exhortations to pay our taxes and passages that say the governing authorities are God's ministers. However, there are many issues in between these two sides of the argument, mostly unsolved questions that pose uh, problems for a strict you-must-obey-everything interpretation. Uh, We've already covered an exception that almost everyone agrees to, the Nazis. Um, if you were if you were drafted into the employ of that government, a uh, democratically elected government, I might add, uh, you certainly have a, a Christian obligation not to harm any Jews. But can you put up a fence? Would any obedience or support to that regime at all go against conscience? And and should you stand up to them and defy them in all manners? I can sympathize with either position. You know, I can't sympathize with killing Jews, uh, despite the fact that I'm a tall, white, bald man with a mustache. But uh, if your only job under Nazi occupation was to take out the trash, and I don't mean that as a euphemism for killing Jews, then I, I can't I can understand not rebelling in any way that would cost you your life. Uh, most would probably agree with me. Um, for those who would side with defying them at every turn, which is what I hope I would have the bravery to do, you've already given up the argument to my side, and you should just consider yourself an anarchist now. But uh, it's going to take me the course of this episode to really lay it all out for you. In short, you've admitted there are appropriate times to rebel against wicked rulers, and that's basically my entire position. One question to be raised regarding a passage like Romans 13 is um, what constitutes a governing authority? What is a government or um, a legitimate ruler? Um, That might seem obvious to you, but if you really try to define it, you're going to run into some logical problems. You know, most of us, if pressed, would define a government as a group of people who collect taxes in order to protect people and their property and fund various community projects. Now, some of you may already disagree with that last part. Some of you would stop at protection, say no community projects, and know that I agree with you. But we are very much in the minority, so I'm just going to stretch it out to community things like roads, utilities, libraries, stuff like that. The reality is that in order to enforce laws, you have to be authorized to use force or violence if you want to be more realistic. Um, you have to be able to use violence against people who attempt to break those laws. And that violence can range from kicking someone off another person's property, or collecting money from a speeding ticket, collecting taxes, arresting people, putting people in jail. These are all things that, that people say the government has to do, and they all require some level of violence or the threat of violence to accomplish. If I won't be locked in a cage, I'm not going to pay my taxes. Why would I? If there were no consequences, I wouldn't give in to them when they demand money from me. You know, if, if some homeless person says he's the, the emperor of America now and he wants my money, um, nothing's going to happen if I don't give in to that because he's not actually the emperor. But the only thing that really makes him not the emperor, the only reason he's not the emperor is because he doesn't have the force to back up his demands. If he did have the force to back up his demands, he pretty much would be the emperor. 
Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but this episode ended up being a lot longer than I expected this week, so this will be the end of part one, and we'll pick up with part two next week. So that's all I got. Give me a follow on Instagram at Nick C. Stewart. Uh, go to nickcsteward.com for all podcast and book-related things. Black Threads is available on Amazon.com. Thanks again to everyone who bought a copy last week to support Mario. Uh, and go to patreon.com slash nicksteward to join the elect for only $4 a month. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Make you a spy!